0: You know, last week was a really fun week because we just got to look at Jesus Christ. I mean, if we honestly, if we do that every week, it's a fun week. It's It's so exciting to look at Jesus Christ, who he really is. Not who people say he is, not who our culture tries to make him out to be, but to actually look what the word of God says he is. You know what we learned last week? He was always existing. He was always in the past in perfect fellowship with God the Father. And he was always in the past God. He's never ceased to ever be God. He didn't become God. And you know, he was someone who created everything that we see. I told you, when you see Genesis 1-1 now, I want you to see Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Because he was the agency. All things were made, as verse 3 tells us, through him. We don't think of it that way. We like I said last week, we typically see God in the Bible. We think automatically the Father. This verse tells us that was Jesus. It was through his agency that he created things. He wasn't just a lowly carpenter from Nazareth. He was a creator of the world. And he didn't, he didn't create by cranking it out. He created by speaking things into existence. That's your Savior. See, he's worthy to be trust. You can trust him with your eternal destiny. He's that powerful. These are the things that we learned upon him. In fact, he created everything. He said one, I heard one commentator say, Christ was crucified on the cross of wood and he made the hill upon which it stood. That is incredible. When you put those two things together, thinking of Jesus Christ, not only was he the creator, he's the life, he's the light of man. Jesus Christ is truly amazing. We ran out of superlatives last week. John ran out of superlatives. Paul runs out of superlatives. At some point, your mouth is dropped and you just behold the lamb. I've got nothing else to say. He's incredible. He's unique. He's one of a kind. This is what we learned about Jesus last week. This morning, we want to consider John the Baptist's ministry. Now, those of you that have a theater background, I don't. But I do know this, that when I go to a theater production, Where does the spotlight usually go? It usually goes onto the person on stage. It's the person that's talking, typically. It's the person that the play or the theatrical performance wants to bring your attention to. And yet we've got something really unique going on with John the Baptist's ministry because John the Baptist is going to shine the light on the light. (laughs) Now that wouldn't work in a theatrical production. No one wants to see the dude back there You know, the with the dad bod, you know, running running the spotlight machine. No one wants to see that guy. We want to see the stars up front. But here's the thing: Jesus Christ is the light. And thus John takes his spotlight and he keeps it on the light. He flashes it on the light. And so he was the one God chose to bring knowledge of who the Messiah was to this generation. And he does it by shining the light. On the light. So let's jump into John chapter 1. We've got obviously uh, multiple Johns here, right? John the Apostle writing, but he's talking about John the Baptist when we get to verse 6. He says this There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Verse 7 This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness. Of that light. And so we see, writing in the late first century, John the Apostle now looks back and identifies this, this special messenger of God. He's got a very specific purpose. He he calls him John. This is John the Baptist, as we know of him in the gospels. And we see that this messenger was sent from God, that, that he had a divine commission, that God actually sent him forth on a very specific mission to preach or herald a very specific message. In fact, the same word is used of Jesus in John 3, that he also was sent by God, okay? This is a divine commission that we see from the apostle John, uh, or for John the Baptist. Now, where was he sent forth to? Well, the scriptures tell us that the Lord specifically sent him out to the wilderness of Judea, and he specifically sent him to a generation of Jews in the first century. You can kind of see that picked up in these other gospel accounts in terms of where he was was, um, interested in sending him. Now, right off the bat, that ought to just draw our attention because God doesn't think like you and I do, okay? Okay. If if I was the one creating a scenario for John the Baptist to come and herald this message, you know where I would send him? The temple. I'd set up shop right outside the temple because that's where I would think he would get the most bang for his buck. When he wasn't at the temple, you know where I'd send him? I'd send him to the front porch of the high priest. Because again, I want him to get the most bang for his buck. God doesn't think that way. He sends him out where? Into the wilderness. He sends him out away from people, out uh, basically by a water source, which we're gonna see, you know, it's the Jordan River. He sends him right there. He doesn't have him camped out where we would think that he was. And you know why he did that? Let me just tell you, this this was always God's plan. And let me tell you why. Hold your finger there and go back with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. We know about the prophecies that speak of Jesus Christ, some 300 of them scholars have identified in the Old Testament that predict him. But you know that John the Baptist was also prophesied about in the Old Testament as well. Isaiah 40 verse 3, he says this, the voice of one crying, where? In the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the deserts a highway for our God. See, God sent John exactly where John was supposed to be. This was God's plan from the beginning. He sent John exactly to do this ministry out by a water source. And we're going to talk more about that again. In fact, his commission was clear from the beginning, from the time of really his birth, all the way to his untimely death. Remember how John the Baptist lost his life? He lost his head. Remember, he was beheaded in a very unfortunate series of events, but he was beheaded by a Roman political leader. And so one of the things that we learn about John, this is uh, preceding the, the Christmas story, right? We love the Christmas story. Luke 1, we generally jump over John's story, but John the Baptist was, uh, was a miraculous birth as well. It wasn't virgin birth, but he was born to, to a couple whose, uh, whose, whose mother had never had a child. Her, her womb was barren. And they were older in years, much like Abraham and Sarah were many thousands of years earlier. They were barren. And and yet the same angel that appeared to Joseph and Mary to tell them they were going to have a miraculous birth is the same angel, Gabriel, that appeared to Zacharias to let him know that he was going to cause uh, Elizabeth to become pregnant. He was going to have a very special and unique ministry this child. And so at his birth, remember Zacharias didn't believe it. And what happened? he became mute for the entire pregnancy, which that, that must've been odd, right? A guy talks all the time and then all of a sudden he can't talk. And then the birth happens and they're all trying to, Elizabeth's like, we're gonna name him John and everyone's trying to convince her. No, no, that's not even a family name. And then finally Zacharias just, his name will be John. You know, he's, he can finally speak again. He gets his voice back. But one of the things that we see, and go ahead and, and hold your finger there in John. And let's go to Luke chapter 1. And don't worry, you won't run out of fingers this morning. We'll give them back to you as we go. But he's going he's gonna to identify three purposes or, or three descriptions of what John's role is, even at this baby's birth. Okay, This is the Spirit of God coming on Zacharias, filling him, giving him this knowledge of what John the Baptist, who would, he would become known as, what his ministry would be. And let's go to Luke chapter one, uh, starting in verse 76. And he says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will, you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. And so we see these two descriptions. He's the prophet of the highest. He would go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. And so John was prophesied about, we already looked at that in Isaiah 43. 40, verse three, this is exactly what God had intended for this child. And he had this very specific role, very specific role in the coming of Messiah. And we're going to look at that. And this is one of those things, you know, some people, um, you know, Jesus later uh, in another gospel account says that John the Baptist is the greatest prophet. Remember that statement? And you're like, man, that's kind of weird. That's, I wonder why he's saying he's the greatest prophet. Here's why. Every other prophet predicted the Messiah he's the only prophet that got to see him and identify him. That's why his ministry was unique. It was a time-specific, a a, a time-frame-specific ministry that only he got to do. So there's a very specific reason he would be the prophet of the highest. He would go before the face of the Lord. By the way, so interesting because I said this last week and just bring it out again. The Jews, astute Jews should have understood that the Messiah would be divine. Now, many of them thought he would. Some were like, ah, I don't know if he's going to be divine. But here's another great example because we get into Isaiah 43 and who is John paving the way for? It, it's interesting because the word is not Messiah in the Old Testament. It's what? Yahweh. He's paving the way for Yahweh himself. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Now, Jesus Christ is not the Father. The Father's Yahweh too. Jesus Christ is God. He's Yahweh. We see it right here. He's going to go before. He doesn't say the Messiah, although Jesus was. The Messiah says he's going to go before the face of the Lord. He's going to go before God and prepare the way. This would be John's ministry. The second thing we see in verse 77 is to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. And he's going to give knowledge of salvation, he says. He was going to communicate the true manner of salvation. Now, why was that important? Because Pharisaical Judaism had messed it up. Just like many religions today have messed it up. Just because you have Jesus Christ in your equation doesn't mean you have the message of salvation. In fact, Jesus Christ, period, that's salvation. Jesus Christ, comma, but, and, yet, is not salvation at all. Because either we trust in him alone or we're not trusting in him alone. There's no middle ground. That's what we're going to see in the book of John. He's going to bring that to a head because there's only two responses. You either believe in him or you don't. It's not, I don't believe in him, but I've got warm, fuzzy feelings toward him. Who, Who cares about your feelings? toward Jesus Christ. Who cares if you think he's a good teacher? Who who cares if you think he was a great man? Who cares? That's not what the Bible says is the method or the mode or the means of salvation. There's a political commentator, facts don't care about your feelings, right? Well, salvation doesn't care about your feelings. Salvation is interested, will you trust in God's solution for your sin debt or will you not? There's only one or two decisions there. That's it. You got two decisions. Will you believe in him? Will you reject him? That's it. That's what the Bible brings it down to. By the way, uh, it's it's really interesting because notice in Luke 177, it says that he would give knowledge of salvation. That's fascinating. Wouldn't you think the Jews would already know how to be saved? The problem is it indicates that they don't know. They didn't know. They were confused. And what we see in Pharisaical Judaism of the day is they taught that if you were a child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if you were male and you were circumcised, and if you tried to keep the Mosaic law, you are in the kingdom. You're saved. You get to enter the kingdom. In fact, as a Jewish man, you would have to work really hard to not enter the kingdom. That's what the teaching was. You would have to reject all of the ritual, now, obviously you couldn't do anything about your circumcision. I mean, that's, that was a done deal at eight days, right? But you could reject the law, you could publicly reject the Mosaic Covenant, and then you might not get into the kingdom. That was kind of the deal. But you know what's so fascinating today? There's still a lot of confusion on salvation. There's still a lot of confusion on what John the Baptist's ministry was. In fact, if I were to ask, and I don't want to because I think uh, we might be embarrassed and that's okay. But if I were to ask uh, a crowd of believers what John the Baptist's ministry was, what was his main message, what was the purpose for him coming, you know what many Christians would say? He wanted people to turn from their sins. That's what what they would say. They would say that John the Baptist's message was largely a desire for a change of behavior. That would be the mindset. We're going to see from the passage this morning. That's not true. Does he use the word repent? Yes, we're going to talk about that. But he never once says, turn from your sins. He never once was focused on external behavior. That was the Pharisees issue. That's what John was telling them to change their mind about. He wasn't now giving them more external things to do, more behavioral change to make. That wasn't his message at all. And yet when you think about John's message, that's what most people think it is. It's not behavioral change. He's interested in the new birth. He's not focused on, he's not just trying to get people focused on their sins. He's trying to focus people to focus on the sin bearer. You see the difference? That's, that's not what he's after. He wants them focused on the one who's taking away their sins. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the, girl, the world. I want you to focus on him. Not your behavior, In fact, most of the people he was talking to out there were religious Orthodox Jews who weren't committing the dirty dozen sins that we always talk about anyways. So it's just, it's incredible to see the confusion. And even Zacharias says, he's gonna give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. We're gonna see how he did just that. The third point that we see Is Notice this, again, coming back to John, this connection to this concept of light in verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. How is he gonna do that? He's gonna point the way to the way. He's gonna shine his light on the spotlight so that they can come into the light. That's what he's gonna do. And so we're gonna see this developed here in the next Few verses, And this is exactly, by the way, we can go, as we go back to John chapter 1 now, this is exactly, these last two points is exactly what John the Baptist emphasized in his ministry and what John is going to record for us in John's ministry. So let's go back to John chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. It says this, This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the, of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness witness of that light. And as I said before, John was a witness. He had the most unique prophetic ministry out of all the prophets. Name them all. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. His was unique. All of these men predicted the coming Messiah. John got to see him and identify him for everybody in person. So he had this unique ministry. He came to simply be a witness. To bear witness means he testifies of the truth that he has seen, heard, or knows. And so his main role as a divine messenger was very specific, a very specific role that John had at a very specific time. He was to share what was revealed to him about the light, Jesus the Messiah, and then point him out to others. That was his ministry. Pretty cool ministry, I wish I had it. (laughs) That'd be kind of fun. Uh, But this was his ministry. Now, one of the things that um, you'll see Uh, in his ministry, and it kind of begs the question, if he's to bear witness of something that he has seen, heard, or know, how did he know that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah? How is he going to know? Well, God went through great care to make sure that he revealed, God the Father, revealed to John the Baptist who exactly Jesus Christ was. And we see that as we go down into the book of John chapter 1. Go with me down to verse 32. And notice what John's testimony is. How did he know for sure that Jesus was the Messiah? Verse 32 of John 1. And John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained upon him. He says, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water. God, the father sent him to baptize with water, said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. And so this is what's so interesting about John the Baptist's ministry to me. Very interesting. Typically, we think that John, what, John's primary ministry was to the masses in Israel to get them to uh, believe his message and then to identify his message with his message through water baptism. That's true. That was part of his ministry. But do you know why else God sent him out into the wilderness, out by the Jordan River? Do you know why God gave him this water baptism ministry? You know one reason why? It's because he was going to use that very tool to reveal to him who the Messiah was. This is exactly how he was going to distinguish Jesus Christ from everyone else that was being baptized. He was going to reveal the identity of Messiah to him. In a very special, unique way, we read about this in other gospels, Jesus's baptism, that the spirit of God descended upon him in the form of a dove. It was something visual, visible that John could see and it remained on him. So John wasn't confused. It wasn't just a dove flying down and landing on someone's shoulder and flying off. And, he, and he's like, Is that, was that it? I don't know if that was it or not. I'm kind of confused. It, was, it would stay on him. It would remain on him. And then he heard God the Father, speak from heaven. And so there was this identifying mark that John saw. Now, knowing that going into your ministry, can you imagine the excitement? You know, some, sometimes some of us are blessed. We actually get to work a job that we enjoy. We wake up in the morning. and We're like, man, I cannot wait to get to work. I cannot wait to get on this project. I, some of y'all are snickering, so maybe it's the opposite for you. But you know what? Can you imagine the, the job that John the Baptist was had? No one, no one had to set an alarm for him, man. He was up at five. I'm just making this up. He was excited because he's like, today could be the day. T- today could be the day that the promise deliver from Genesis 3.15 that I've learned about all my life, that I'm going to see him, and I'm going to be able to identify him, and I'm going to scream at the top of my lungs, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I get to do that. Every single day. I, and, when, and that day, it could be today, I might see him for the first time and how excited he must have been to roll out of bed or roll off the ground wherever he was sleeping at the time and get out there and start baptizing people and preaching that message, hoping that today would be the day he would see the Messiah. How exciting. And it probably really blew his mind because he already knew the Messiah because it was his cousin. It was a relative. And they're about the same age. So it's just kind of, Interesting stuff as you kind of think through. Now, so we see he's going to be this this, uh, witness. He's the bear witness of the light. But then I want you to notice something. Because John the Apostle is now going to subtly give us the purpose of John the Baptist's ministry. He's going to give us the end result. What is God trying to accomplish through John the Baptist's ministry of identifying the Messiah? What does God want the response to be? And it's very subtle, but you can see it in your Bibles. Go with me to verse seven. If you haven't underlined this word, it's a great Bible study word to underline. It's the word that. That gives purpose, that gives result. Why did God the Father want John to bear witness of the light, to point him out, to identify him? That what? What would they do? Now, before you look at the, you've already looked at the verse. I see heads down. That's Okay. Before you looked at the verse, what would our culture tell you was the purpose? What would you expect to see there in verse 7? I would expect them to say that they would turn from their sins. Because that's what everyone thinks John the Baptist's ministry is all about. But it doesn't say that. What does it say? It's very simple. This is the purpose. It says that that all through him might do what? Believe. We... We've been looking at the commission of John. Now we're looking at the end result. And so what was God's desired end result or purpose for John's ministry? That people would believe in Jesus Christ. This is the first time that we see this word in the gospel. It's used a hundred times in this book in 86 different verses. It means to have faith in. It means to trust in. It means to be firmly persuaded as to something and then relying upon it as a result. It means fully convinced because something is true and reliable, I'm going to rely on it. What are they relying upon in this case? The light, Jesus Christ. That is the goal of John the Baptist's ministry. And, and, and if you take, don't take anything else away from the sermon this morning, take that away. The message of the Bible is consistent. This is how Abraham was declared righteous in Genesis 15, 6. This is how every Old Testament saint was declared righteous. It's through faith in the deliverer. This is John's message too. It's not quit lying, cheating, and stealing. I mean, that's, that's, totally, that's a totally different conversation. He's interested in the new birth. He's not interested in changing behavior. You know, there are many alcoholics in this world who were alcoholics, who gave up alcohol, and they still went to hell. Because it's not about changed behavior that gets you into heaven. Heaven is not a reward for the righteous. It's a gift for the guilty. And as soon as we get that in our mind, we can understand that we don't deserve heaven. If we got what we earned or deserved, it would be hell. And the only way we have a chance is because of the one who's seated at the Father's right hand who died for me and rose again. It's my only chance. That's what the Bible wants us to understand and be convinced of. And so John the Baptist is no different. John the Baptist's message is the same message that Jesus was preaching to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you must be born again. You're not good enough in your pharisaical religion. I don't care if you're a rabbi of rabbis. I don't care if you're the teacher of Israel. I don't care if you've got the entire Torah memorized at your bar mitzvah. You cannot earn heaven, Nicodemus. Nicodemus is like, well, I gotta go back to my mother's womb. I mean, he's just totally freaking out. I thought I was there. You ain't there, Nicodemus. Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom. That's because we need a righteousness equal to God's righteousness, and you can only get it when you trust in his solution for righteousness. His name's Jesus Christ. And so these are all of these things coming together. And as I've mentioned before, it's fascinating Again, because when you ask most people what was John the Baptist's purpose of his ministry, what was the end result he was looking for, they're going to tell you he wanted people to repent of their sins. He wanted people to turn from their sins. It's all behavioral. And again, it's not what John says here. In fact, we're going to see that Paul and John are exactly unified as they understand what John the Baptist's ministry was. What was the end result? What was the purpose? By the way, it's kind of ironic that we think that because the word repent is used by John the Baptist multiple times. I mean, that's, there's no denying that. But do you know if you go to those passages, you will never find the phrase repent of your sins or repent from your sins? By the way, do you know you'll never find those two phrases anywhere in the Bible? Put together like that, you'll never find it. And now, based on Bible teaching, you'd think it'd be on every other page, of the Bible. Like I could just find this a million places. But you know what you can find? Faith 160 times is the only prerequisite you need to do to be saved. You can find that. Pretty clear. And and I'd be happy to give you that list if if you're interested in seeing that. But it, it's so ironic that that we get we've gotten locked into this thinking on John the Baptist's ministry when it's so clearly stated what the end result or purpose of his ministry is. It's to get people to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the word "repent" is a Greek word. Uh, comes from a, a compound word, meta naeo, meta meaning change, naeo meaning to think or to exercise the mind. So what was John telling them to change the way they thought about something or what was needed to change their mind about? Well, he was telling them they needed to change their mind about how they were going to get into the kingdom. Again, how did they think they were getting into the kingdom? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's son, that's good. I'm a male, I'm circumcised. Number two, that's good. I'm trying to keep the Mosaic law. I value it. Okay, amen. That is incorrect. That's not how anybody gets eternal life. In fact, that message has been repackaged in religion all throughout the centuries of the world because religion always wants to tell you what you must do for God where the Bible wants to tell you what God has done for you. Religion wants you to focus on what you must sacrifice for God The Bible wants you to know what God has sacrificed for you. God provides the solution. He's not looking for you to provide the solution. We can't even remember to take the trash can out on the right day every week. We can't remember to turn off lights. You know, I used to joke, I don't want to be that old man walking around my house in my black socks just turning lights off all day. But I've become that man. People don't remember the smallest things. How could you trust somebody to remember what they need to remember to gain eternal life? That's why God sent a Savior. That's why Jesus died for your sins. You can't save yourself. I can't save myself. And oh, by the way, I mentioned earlier, Paul also is recorded in scriptures telling us what the end purpose and desired result for John the Baptist's ministry is. You recall uh, in Acts 19, Paul is in Ephesus. He runs into some disciples of John the Baptist. They've got some confusion and this is what Paul says in Acts 19.4. Then Paul said, speaking of John the Baptist, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance. Again, not repentance of sin, not repentance from your sin, but a baptism of a change of mind. What did he want them to change their mind about? Look here. Saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. That is in Christ Jesus. You see how consistent the word of God is? Now, John the Apostle has said the end goal or purpose of John the Baptist's ministry is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says the same thing in Acts 19 to some of John the Baptist's disciples. That's the message of John the Baptist. He is saying, behold the Lamb of God and believe in him. That's the message of John the Baptist. And so again, it's not behavioral change. It's a change of mind for what it took to get into the kingdom of God. Again, Jews did not, and neither did Gentiles, possess God's righteousness. They needed it. The way God provides it is through his dear son, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. They needed a savior. They didn't need more laws. They needed righteousness. They needed the promise delivered from Genesis 3, and they didn't realize it. They thought they were good enough. They were pretty proud of their Jewishness. And so one of the things that John goes on to say here in this passage is that he was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of the light. So, so John kind of provides a a clarification here so that people don't start to think that John the Baptist is the light. Now, what's really fascinating about that is um, history bears out that that was a needed clarification. Because again, we, we fast forwarded to Acts 19, probably 30, you know, 25, 30 years after John the Baptist was beheaded. And you still have followers of John the Baptist in Ephesus. They don't even understand that the one he was pointing to had come. They didn't even understand that. So there's this this group that still continue to follow John the Baptist long after he's died. In fact, just doing some research, there's actually a sect um, south of Baghdad in Iraq that still follow John the Baptist, or at least trace their ancestral lineage to John the Baptist, and they're hostile toward Christians on top of it. So very, very interesting. So he's very clear. John the Baptist is not the light, but what does he do? He bears witness of the light. He's trying to turn our attention to the light. He's focused on the light. And you know, one of the things that we see in John's ministry is he continued to identify Jesus Christ. As long as we have record of his ministry, this is what he did. Chapter 1, verse 29, we've got it up uh, on the board back here. But behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 36 Behold the Lamb of God. When we get into chapter 3, verse 30, it's just really funny because John the Baptist's disciples, they're getting a little jealous. They're saying, man, hey, this guy, Jesus, he's, you know, he's baptized. He's getting more people baptized now. He's kind of taking our crowd here where our crowds are dwindling. And John the Baptist is like, of course, that's what it's supposed to be about. And he says, he must increase, I must decrease. And see, so you see this mindset of John. He's constantly bearing witness. See, John didn't want to hog the spotlight. He wanted to point the spotlight to Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And now, as we get into verses 9 through 13, we're not going to get all the way through 13 this morning, uh, but as we get into 9 through 13, we get this snapshot. It's like a, a real quick snapshot. John establishes this, this kind of, um, these, these train tracks throughout all the book, I guess. And what it is, is it shows us how everyone in the world, world responds to Jesus Christ. As you sit here today, those that are listening online, you are in one of two categories. You you either believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or you don't. Again, there's nothing in between. You you either have received him or you've rejected him. As you sit here today, one of those two things is true of each one of us, and it's true of everyone in, in the world. Uh, that we see. And so John, what we find is that uh, through these passages, it's interesting, John the Baptist had this divine commission. God gave him the resources he needed. God gave him this revelation to identify the Messiah. And John the Baptist's ministry was still not 100% successful. Because we're going to see many people rejected the one that he identified. And that's still happening today, unfortunately. And so in verse 9, we read this, That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. this is very similar to what we looked at last week in verses 4 through 5. I like how the NASB puts it because sometimes the order uh, is just worded better maybe with how the language uh, communicates it. The New American Standard says this, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens Every man. So the idea focus here is that Jesus came into the world. We're talking about his incarnation, that there was at this point, he enlightened every man. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Was, again, imperfect tense. We kind of covered that a lot last week because John kept using this. he brings it down into verse 9 as well. It's an ongoing action in process in the past. The idea communicated is Jesus was always the true light. He didn't become the true light. He always was, and he always is the true light, as John says it here. He wasn't a true light, right? He was the true light, the one and only, the unique one. Again, we get a little bit more insight into his person. And again, coming into the world refers to Jesus's incarnation. So there was a point in time in history where Jesus entered the world at his incarnation, We're going to read a little bit more about that in the next couple of verses, but this is what we're talking about. And there was a result. Now, before we get too further, verse 10 tells us that he entered the very world that he created. Verse 3 is where we see that. And then verse 14 describes the mechanism by which he entered the world. How did he do it? He did it through a human body. There was a unique birth that was predicted uh, through a virgin where he entered The world. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus was not in the world before that. And some people say, well, he entered it there. I don't know what he's been doing the last thousands of years, sleeping and taking time off. No, he's in the world. In fact, uh, we can't list all of them, but there were pre-incarnate appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe, in the Old Testament. I think you can make an argument for that. The burning bush being one of them in Exodus 3, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, in Daniel chapter three, they're in the fire with those three young men. And so you see these pre-incarnate appearances of Christ, but there was a very unique coming into the world at his incarnation where he took on flesh. This is what I believe he's talking about. And so this was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world at his incarnation. And so what we see is that Jesus enlightens every man. It means to give light to, to illuminate or to figuratively make known. It's it's a present tense verb it means that right now right at his incarnation he began to urgently enlighten the minds of men it means that he's still doing it continually is the idea that he is an enlightening every man he wants people to know who he is and what he has done for them now you know it's really fascinating uh, just being out at the fair a couple of weeks ago because if you're american And this is true of many other countries, but this is the country I know best. If you're American, you know that Jesus died. You've heard that story. You know that Jesus died for sin. You know that Jesus rose again. You've heard that story a million times. Here's what fascinated me at the fair and fascinates me every time I talk to an unbeliever from the United States. They know that, but they have never made the connection that Jesus, why Jesus did it. They've never made the connection why Jesus did it For them personally. And see, once people understand that their sin caused them to be judged and makes them deserving of punishment in hell, then they hear about the solution and they realize that Jesus did that for them so that they wouldn't have to face that penalty. Now it clicks, now it makes sense. And I told a girl, I was sitting across from a girl at the fair. And she had more piercings in her face than I've ever seen in person. I mean, I've seen people on TV with more piercings, but never in person like this. Hurting, damaged, hostile to Christianity. And she let me get to the gospel. And when I said that, she she looked at her friend. She said, that makes me love him more. I couldn't believe it. It totally melted her heart to hear what Christ had done. This is what Jesus Christ wants to do. He wants to enlighten, illuminate, make pertinent what he's done, not be the wallpaper on your bathroom wall that no one looks at, no one notices. We talk about him two times a year. Christmas, because I get lots of gifts, so I kind of like him for that. And Easter, I get to eat a lot of food, and I kind of like him for that, and I get chocolate, right? He needs to get off of the wallpaper. He, he actually means something. What he did actually means something. It's real. It's not fake. It's not worthless. It's worth everything. And and so he enlightens every man. He wants people to know. He continually wants to do that. Notice the text says every man, not just some men, not just the elect, not just a certain select group, but every man. He uses the Greek word anthropos. He's not talking about males. He's talking about mankind. He's talking about everybody. Everybody. He wants everybody to know this. He wants everybody to be enlightened about this truth. And it's accomplished in a couple of ways. We see general revelation. Psalm 19 covers both of these. General revelation, which would be creation. Special revelation, which would be the recorded word of God. This is one way that he's enlightening us. We also saw in addition to those external revelations uh, last week that God provided internal illumination through reason and conscience. We, we see that specifically recorded in Romans chapter 1. This is why in Romans one twenty it says that all men everywhere are without excuse. Why? General revelation and then the conscience that resides in them. Knowing right from wrong. Seeing the creation. Understanding by those two things that there's a God who exists and there's a God who requires righteousness. This is what we see from the scriptures. And so we know that these two aspects of illumination are true, but this verse, I think, is speaking of something more, and that's what I was alluding to, that Jesus Christ is the end of the trail that's revealed to mankind. He's the end of the illuminated trail. That is where people should end up. Jesus is where everyone is designed to lead. And so if a person starts responding to the truth that they possess, if they keep taking steps down that road, they're gonna find Jesus Christ at the end of it. That is kind of what I believe he's saying. And so this path of life has been illuminated, especially, specifically through his incarnation. Because people in the Old Testament say, well, I don't know who the Messiah is. What's his name? What's he gonna do? What's he, they can have all these questions. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Now that we've got him in the world, the New Testament revelation records what he did, records how he paid the penalty for our sin, records what God requires of us to enjoy the benefit of what he did Now, the entire path has been illuminated. He has lit it up, so to speak. And by the way, this is why John is now pointing his spotlight to the light because he's saying that's the only way to go to heaven. That's the only way to enjoy eternal life. That's the only way to get forgiveness of sins is when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now, just because every person's enlightened, though, it doesn't mean every person is saved. That's why these next few verses are really going to detail us. There's a required volitional response to benefit from the finished work of Christ. Because that's always the question, right? Is we start, start talking about the finished work of Christ. He paid it in full. He paid for everyone's sins in full, past, present, and future. Then the question becomes, well, why do some people go to hell and some people go, go to heaven? Why do some people still end up going uh, and facing the penalty that they deserve? And here's the reason why. They don't trust in a Savior to save them. They reject him and thus they spend eternity in hell due to unbelief. That's why they go there. Still, they don't have to. And that's really the saddest message for anyone that goes to hell. They didn't have to go there. God provided a solution. They didn't have to do any, they didn't have to run around the church 400 times, run a marathon, uh, make lots of money, give this money to the church, light these many candles, take this pilgrimage. They had to look back at a day in human history and see the son of God dying for their sins and rising again, said, you know what? I trust in him. His death was in my place He's going to save me. That's what they had to do. And unfortunately, many people reject this Jesus. We're going to see as we get into these next two verses, we'll read them together. I think one of the most tragic passages in all the Bible right here we're about to read. Very sad because after all God had done for them, they didn't use the opportunity to get to know him or to come to know him, and they did not receive him. They rejected him. We even saw this in the story, not to get off track, but let me just bring this up. We even saw this in the story of the Magi visiting Herod. Remember that? They said, we've come to worship the king of the Jews. And who does Herod go to? He goes to his experts on the Old Testament, his religious leaders. And they said, tell me about the birth of Messiah. Oh yeah, it's going to be in Bethlehem. And they send the Magi off. Now, here's always been my question. Why didn't the scribes and why didn't the religious leaders care enough to get off their rear ends and go to Bethlehem? to see the same things the Magi had just traveled thousands of miles to see because they didn't care. They didn't even take the time to get to know him. We're going to see that borne out in these verses. He was in the world, verse 10, and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. Again, was in perfect tense. Jesus was in the world over a process of time. He lived 33 years. He was in the world that he created And John, again, points to his participation in the creation of the very world. He uses the same word, Greek word, dia, through his agency. Again, just emphasizing that Jesus was the means and cause of creating this world. And then he came into the very world he created. And you know what Jesus deserved? He deserved a victor's welcome. He deserved to be worshiped and honored just like he was when he was riding on the donkey into Jerusalem that week. What's really tragic is those people were so fickle that by the end of the week, the same people crying out, Hosanna, were the same people crying out, crucify him. How tragic. The creator of the world comes into his world. He should be totally lauded and worshiped and honored. And he wasn't, as we're going to see. In fact, the text tells us that the world did not know him. What's really sad about this is we look at the language. Know means to come to know, to get to know, to receive knowledge. And what it's it's it, it there was another Greek word that could have said intuitive knowledge, like they should have known. This isn't this. This is they didn't take the time to gain the knowledge of him when he was here. Just like the scribes uh, and the and the lawyers that advised there. Oh yeah, he's in Bethlehem. Just, you know, next time you need to wake us up from a nap, you know, just knock first, right? I mean, it's like, are you kidding me? You have no interest in seeing if the long waited Messiah is actually here? If these magi are right? You don't care? That's exactly their response. And so what John is describing is tragic. Here's the true light. He's the one who's provided illumination for everyone to see him. The very one who created everything around them. They didn't even take the time to get to know more about him. This is the testimony of this first generation of Jews. Not only that, they didn't pay attention to the prophecies. They could have counted down the days from Daniel 9. They could have counted and said, well, he's going to be on earth around this time. They could have counted it down. They didn't care about the prophecies. They didn't pay attention to the miracles that were specifically predicted that he would do, that he was doing in front of their face. They weren't even making the connection. They didn't even care. They didn't try to get to know what was going on. They ignored the identification of him by one of God's prophets. John is literally walking around with his finger out. There he is. There he is. They just ignored him. They didn't care. Many of them did. Some did. They just didn't take the time or care to even investigate further. They're presented with this incredible truth about this person, Jesus Christ, They just didn't even pursue the conversation further. How tragic is that? How tragic is that? Verse 11, let's finish here this morning. Came to his own and his own did not receive him. So again, not only did Jesus Christ come into the world at a point in time, but he also came over to his own special chosen people, the Jewish people. It's really interesting, these two phrases. It seems like John, John does this, by the way. He does repeat himself a lot. It looks like he's just repeating himself here, but he's actually, there's a little distinction because the first phrase, his own, is actually neuter in the Greek. It's used in the sense of home. Uh, he came to, to his own belongings. The idea is he created this place, he, he came home. He came to his own, his own home. Then the second phrase is masculine. It means he came to his own people. It, it gets personal. So he came to his own home and then he came over to his own people is kind of the idea that's communicated here in verse 11. And you know that the Old Testament prophesied that Jesus Christ, although he's not identified specifically by name in the Old Testament, would come one day to his people. Let me just fly through some of these. Genesis 3:15, prophesied that God would send a man, the seed of a woman who would defeat and conquer sin, death and Satan, prophesied right there in Genesis 3:15. Revelation given progressively over time, we revealed that the prophesied deliverer would be the ultimate problem to sin or be the ultimate solution to sin's problem. And in some way, his role would be that of a substitute. How do we see that? Thousands of animal sacrifices over the year. Innocent animal dying in the place of guilty man. Guilty man living on because innocent animal died the death that guilty man deserved, all pointing to uh, this prophesied deliver. And then when you get to John the Baptist ministry, he connects all of these lamb deaths to the one lamb of God who not only covers sin. See, that's what Old Testament sacrifices did. It's merely covered sin. Jesus did something much more. And now that we know, we've learned more about the person of Jesus, why should that surprise us? That his middle name is much more. His middle name is, Is incredible, above all that you can ask or think. And so, what did Jesus do? He didn't just cover sin, He took it away. He removed it. This is what God had been predicting all throughout the Old Testament. You know, we learned that the promise delivers human lineage would be of the the, uh, seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We learned that in the uh, Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12. We also learned He'd be of the tribe of Judah, He'd be uh, of that lineage. We also learned, and this is big, Daniel 9. He would be on earth and he would be cut off 483 years following King Artaxerxes' decree to rebuild, the Jerusalem, uh, the, the rebuild Jerusalem in 444 BC. They could have started their stopwatch and said, man, he's going to be here on earth somewhere. Let's be looking for him. But they didn't make those connections. Again, they didn't decide to check it out. Isaiah 35 tells us he would do special and unique miracles that had never been done before. You know that there was, here's what's so ironic. God, in giving the Old Testament law, just as one example, gave gave requirements. If someone was ever healed from leprosy, this is what you do. There were all these steps that they would do. And Moses must have looked at that and said, who's ever going to be healed from leprosy? That's like impossible to do. Well, guess what? Jesus Christ shows up on the scene and Jesus Christ heals lepers. And then what does Jesus Christ do? Now go to the, the priest and tell them. And the priest probably had the dust. There was probably dust on that page of the scroll. Like, what do we do when someone's healed with leprosy? Because it had never happened before. These, these are the miracles that were designed to validate and verify who Jesus Christ was. In fact, John the Baptist, he's, he's in prison. He's thinking, maybe I got this wrong. He sends messengers to Jesus, says, are you the one, or are we still looking for another one? G began to question it. And you know what Jesus says? He could have just says, John, I'm the one. Send it back. Just tell him I'm the one. He doesn't say that. You know what he tells to John? The lepers are healed. The blind see. The mute speak. What's he telling them? John, go back to the word of God. Go back to the Old Testament. Everything that was testified of me, I'm doing. That should be enough. You want to be convinced from the word of God that I am the Messiah. He would have a human forerunner. Again, telling people the Messiah was here now, prophesied again of John the Baptist. And then the time of his coming was perfect, designed by God the Father. But here's the saddest verse in the Bible, or the saddest phrase, and his own did not receive him. means they didn't take him in. They didn't take him as an associate or companion. They simply rejected him. They simply looked at him, looked at all this evidence and said, nah, not for me. Uh, and they rejected him. Now, not every Jew rejected him, right? We know that some did. Some believed in him, as we're gonna see um, even next week in verse 12. But here's the thing. Here's God's promise and predicted deliver, doing everything that the written word of God said he would do, and they rejected him. They took it all in. They didn't wanna know it, and they just simply rejected him. And these were the ones who should have known better, especially the religious leaders. They knew these scriptures in and out. They knew that these scriptures pointed to him. They knew what they should have been looking for. And then when they saw it, they rejected him. Very tragic. And so the good news, which we'll get to share a little bit more next week, is this verse 12, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Let's close there. Lord, I thank you for your word. I, I, my heart breaks for that first century group that, that got to see you, got to witness your miracles, and yet rejected you anyways. Lord, we're just grateful to, today that we have the opportunity in many ways to reenact John the Baptist's ministry. We, we can point to you. We can point to you in your word, and tell people about the light of the world, and tell people about your son and what he accomplished for each one of us. And so we're grateful for that opportunity, Lord. We're just grateful to know uh, that when you died for our sins, you paid them in full, and that through simple trust in you, we can have forgiveness of sins. We can have eternal life as a free gift, not something we will ever deserve or merit, but something that you give on the basis of your grace. We're so thankful to you for that, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.